What a sweet time it is to be here together, worshiping together, singing to each other and to the Lord. Uh, some wonderful, profound truths of the gospel in those songs. I'm really thankful. I'm also really excited to open up the Word of God with you now and study it together and proclaim it. And this morning, we're going to take a break from our series in the book of Joshua and turn over to the book of Proverbs. So if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles or swipe open your phones to Proverbs 28. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, our ushers are going to walk down the aisle and just raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. And they'd be happy to give you one to use for today or even to keep if you do not have your own. As we look at the book of Proverbs, we ought to ask ourselves, what is a proverb? Proverbs are short, pithy, and usually very popular statements that uh, carries a lot of wisdom and information in them to apply to our lives. It's something that usually requires someone wise in their understanding to discern. We actually use proverbs a lot in our lives, whether we uh, know it or not. If you ever have thought about or used the phrase, don't count your chickens before they hatch, that is a proverb. Or six feet of earth is what makes all men equal. A lie travels around the world before the truth can even put its shoes on. Or anything is possible if you don't know how to do it. It takes a minute sometimes to think about the meaning of them. But as we look to Scripture, uh, these ones are separated that we're about to read uh, by thousands of years of cultural difference. So the meaning doesn't always jump out to you as quick when you read a proverb in the Bible. And even if it does, you can spend a lot of time thinking about its application in your life. One author described them this way. Proverbs are like popcorn. They are tight little kernels that seem to be difficult to crack, yet... By applying the correct type of hermeneutical heat, the meaning-packed kernels pop open with delightful insights. When I said the word hermeneutical, some of you were herm who? (laughs) What that just means is that when we apply the right principles of biblical interpretation to a proverb, taking things like grammar and context and style of writing into account, we will reap a great reward. And so the whole book of Proverbs is a giant compilation by the King Solomon of wise sayings, many of which he wrote himself, as he searched for God's wisdom. And he put them together for his son so that his son would learn to contemplate the fear of the Lord and to live in light of God's wisdom. This means that as we study our text this morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we also will get to experience those two things. So with that in mind, I'd I'd like to invite you to stand with me if you're able in honor of the reading of God's word as I read Proverbs 28, verses 13 and 14. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. This is the brief reading of God's word. You may be seated. Please pray with me before we continue on. 
Lord, your word is a, is a precious treasure. It is more valuable than anything else in this world, and we are so grateful to have our own copy of it and to be able to study it together. I pray that you'd help us to pursue it like we would pursue money in this world. I pray that you'd help us to see how sweet it is, how it, how it uh, makes the simple wise, and how it it opens up our minds and hearts to see you more clearly, how it shines as a light upon our path and lights the darkness when it's hard to see what is right and what is wrong. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do a work this morning as we study. Uh, we trust that your word never goes out and returns um, empty-handed, that it always accomplishes the purpose for which you intend. So, Lord, we want to marvel at your word this morning. We ask for your blessing as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it should be clear from the title of this message and the outline that we're going to be talking about the conscience. And the reason why is because this passage is all about the conscience. These two verses compare and contrast the outcome between someone with a hard heart and someone with a soft heart. The, 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 the idea of the heart is Old Testament language often for the conscience. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. In the New Testament, the conscience is referred to 31 times, and in the Old Testament, several times as well. Popular culture often portrays the conscience as the little devil and angel that sit on your shoulders and are always trying to get you to make a decision one way or another. Or perhaps you're more familiar with uh, the uh, portrayal of the conscience in Pinocchio, where you have Jiminy the Cricket uh, helping Pinocchio discern between right and wrong. And that certainly is what it feels like when our conscience is active. But what does the Bible say about the conscience? Well, the Greek word that's used in the New Testament refers to uh, the inner faculty of distinguishing between right and wrong, uh, a moral consciousness. It is the soul's reflecting on itself. One author defined it well, saying, quote, the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right or wrong. Romans chapter 2, 14 through 15, describes the conscience this way, helpfully. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So just from those two verses alone, we learn a couple of things about the conscience. First, everybody has a conscience. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it is part of what it means to be made in the image of God, and it is a tool necessary, among many others, for godly living. Second thing we learn is that the conscience gives us a moral awareness of our standing before God. Uh, a pastor and theologian, Dr. Joel Beakey, wrote this. He says, it impresses a man's mind with the moral authority of God and as a result produces a sense of anxiety and misery or joy and peace that anticipates eternity. It binds a man with such authority that no created thing can release him from it. So the conscience isn't just a negative thing that's just always telling you what you do is wrong, but a positive side of that conscience and a blessed aspect of it as well is that it affirms and assures you when you are doing what is right. 
It's kind of like the check engine light on your dashboard. Or if that thing pops on, it's warning you that, there, that there's something going on that could be minor, but it also could be serious. If you, if you ignore it, it could lead to catastrophic engine failure. But the third thing we learn from this passage is that the conscience leads us to act a certain way. It draws you to do that which you believe is right and restrains you from doing that which you believe is wrong. Now, none of us like feeling guilty. None of us like the trouble of wrestling with our conscience, which is why we are so often tempted to silence it, to turn down the volume on it. It's also troublesome when we find ourselves disagreeing with other Christians on matters of conscience. And on top of all of that, our conscience isn't always accurate. It's not perfect. It doesn't always tell us what is truly right and what is truly wrong. This makes sometimes the conscience feel more like a curse than a blessing. But our passage in Proverbs tells us the main point that your conscience is a gift from God to guide you away from sin and toward mercy. Just like pain is a gift from God that helps your body avoid suffering and misery and keeps your body safe, the conscience causes spiritual pain to keep your soul safe. Just look at the blessing in the verses. It's very apparent. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. These two verses are essentially saying the same thing, but with a slightly added nuance in the second verse to give a deeper meaning. Proverbs are like the Psalms in that they're written with a form of Hebrew poetry called parallelism, which just means you put two statements side by side that help complement each other in some way. They might contrast each other. They might be similar in meaning. They might help illustrate each other, but they're there to help convey deeper meaning. We use, we are, we are often more familiar with English poetry, which rhymes with sounds, but in Hebrew poetry, they rhyme with ideas. So what this means is that in these two verses, they are similar in meaning. So, the person who hides his sin is the same person who hardens his heart. And on the flip side, the one who confesses and repents of his sin is the same person who is joyful and fears the Lord. The meaning of this proverb is very simple. You could rephrase it this way. A tender conscience leads to repentance and forgiveness, but a hardened conscience leads to more guilt and destruction. As we walk through these two verses, this proverb will teach us the difference between these two outcomes, between being blessed and destruction, is based upon how you respond and train your conscience. Every time you make a decision, you either positively or negatively train your conscience. So the first way you can train your conscience is by resisting it. Verse 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. If you cover up your sin, you are resisting your conscience. At worst, if you're not a believer and you resist your conscience, it means you won't be forgiven of your sins and you will be condemned to eternity 
in hell. But for Christians, it means you won't enjoy the blessing of ongoing intimate fellowship with your creator and your conscience will be laden and burdened with guilt. God offers his mercy only to those who confess and forsake their sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 reminds us of the ongoing blessing of confession. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In this verse, the apostle John is talking to believers. And so we know that those who are already trusting in Jesus have been forgiven of all their sins past, present, and future. They are justified judicially in God's eyes and nothing can change that. Even though Christians are forgiven judicially in a courtroom sense, once and for all, we still struggle with sin though. And when we sin, it means we aren't aligned with God's will and purposes anymore and we're not able to enjoy that fellowship with him. But confession restores that. Confession is simply telling God that you agree with his law and his judgment that you have broken it. Confession is simply telling God that you have sinned in a particular way. So when we confess, God promises not only to forgive, but to cleanse our conscience from the guilt. Christians should be regularly asking for forgiveness as part of our sanctification, not our justification. We don't regularly confess because something is incomplete or is lacking in our salvation. Jesus taught the disciples to pray regularly for the forgiveness of their sins. And in John chapter 13, while in the upper room, he reminded them that they had already been spiritually bathed clean. But every once in a while as needed, they would need to wash the spiritual dirt off their feet. But if you choose to conceal your sin instead, you will be burdened with guilt, which does take its toll on you spiritually and physically. Resisting the conscience will lead to curses. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve hid themselves from God after eating the fruit and after he told them not to and they suffered the curse for that. David wrote in Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, he experienced spiritual and physical suffering instead of blessing because of unconfessed sin. Why do we resist our conscience? Well, one of the ways we do it is by rationalizing sin. That's how we resist. We do this in a lot of different ways. We can downplay the seriousness of our sin. Think, well, I, it's just a lustful thought in my head. It's private. It doesn't affect anybody else. No one else knows. It's not a big deal. Uh, I'm not really envious. I just... I just think I've worked hard and I should and I deserve some credit for my hard work. Oh yes, I, I lack a little self-control, but I'm just young. I'll grow out of it. It's not that big of a deal. Maybe we relabel the sin to make it sound more pleasant. I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. I'm not complaining. I'm just letting my concerns be known. I didn't lie. I just didn't tell you everything. Or I'm not gossiping. I just, I just want you to know so you can be praying. We can also blame shift. Adam did that in the garden. He blamed his wife first, threw her under the bus, and then went about blaming God. It wasn't me, it was the wife you gave me. We do that too, though, don't we? I mean, if I am 
if I have a conflict with my wife or my children, it can be tempting to say, well, if you hadn't done A, B, or C, I wouldn't be angry. We think, well, I wouldn't be so anxious if things were, weren't so stressful at work. Our culture likes to blame shift by ignoring the spiritual realm and blaming everything on biology. Instead of talking about sin, they'll talk about society and our biology. If someone gets drunk, it's because of alcoholism. It, if somebody looks at pornography or is, is into self-gratification, it's because of a biological need that they have to satisfy. If somebody struggles with anxiety, depression, or somebody struggles with sitting still and paying attention, it's a disorder. And if you have a disorder that's biological, then you need medicine to fix that. In addition to that, the currency of our day is the victim card. The victim mentality seeks to avoid all responsibility. If someone robs a store, well, it's not their fault. It's society's fault. It was probably because that person was oppressed or because they had a poor upbringing. If someone uh, goes around and shoots up a school or a mall, it's not their fault. It's the gun manufacturer's fault or it's mental illness or it's the legislature's fault for not ruling out guns. Abortion's not murder. It's the choice of a woman who's the victim of her partner and her biology. The problem with this kind of thinking, though, is that it does leak into the church. We would rather believe that we are victims then deal with our sin. We want self-pity, not guilt. Pastor, if, if God hadn't made this hardship in my life, if I hadn't gone through this suffering, then I would be more obedient. I wouldn't struggle as much. But when we rationalize our sin, it doesn't solve any problems. It just causes more. Now, the other way we resist our conscience is by desensitizing ourselves to sin. Proverbs 28, 14, whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. To, to harden the heart is to silence it by ignoring it or by killing it through searing so that you don't feel it anymore. Many of you will recall uh, Disney's popular movie of Pinocchio and how he often ignores Jiminy Cricket when he's trying to warn him about the dangers that he's facing and he goes on to suffer for it. But in the original book published in the 1880s, very early on in the book, Pinocchio doesn't just ignore Jiminy Cricket. He throws a hammer at him and kills him. Okay, but we can do that to our own conscience as well over time. Every time you feel guilty but ignore those feelings, you start walking down the path of desensitizing. You can do this by thinking about all the good things you do instead of the bad thing you're doing and try to out, you know, do a comparison scale. Well, well I, I am a pretty good person over here, so that, that helps me just sweep my sin under the rug. Or maybe you just ignore your conscience and think that it's just flat out wrong. In 1984, a plane from Avianca Airline crashed in Spain, killing all 148 people on board. And when they recovered the two black boxes from the plane, they found out that the automatic warning system had been warning the pilots to pull up, pull up in English. But the pilots thought that there was a malfunction, and the cockpit was recorded, uh, recorded the pilot saying, shut up, gringo. And then a few minutes later, the plane crashed. Similarly, if we ignore the warnings of our conscience, it can lead to dangerous situations. 
When you ignore it, you will continue to desensitize yourself even further by acting against it or searing it. The Bible makes it very, very clear that if you act against your conscience, you are sinning. Romans 14, 23 says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So in the context there, Paul is talking to believers in the church of Rome who were struggling in their conscience with whether it was okay to eat meat or not. And Paul simplifies and says, if you believe something is wrong, but you do it anyways, it's a sin. Even if your conscience is ill-informed, it's like on an issue like eating meat, it's still a sin. If you habitually overrule your conscience, you will condition yourself to reject it. The Bible refers to this as a seared conscience. Just like developing calluses or suffering a severe burn leaves you with a loss of feeling, a seared conscience also leaves you without a sense of feeling between right and wrong. Desensitizing your conscience can ultimately lead to the condemnation of your soul. Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Cain hardened his conscience toward his brother when he was angry and jealous. God warned him, yet despite the warnings of his conscience, he killed his brother. Pharaoh had many opportunities to respond to his conscience, yet he hardened his heart over and over again. Even though his nation was economically devastated, he hardened his heart. Even though he lost his firstborn child to the angel of death, he hardened his heart. Even though his whole army was wiped out in the Red Sea, he hardened his heart. These examples are are a few among many in the scriptures that serve as warnings. They remind us that God is very kind, generous, gracious, and slow to anger. But if anyone desensitizes themselves long enough to any kind of sin, it will lead to condemnation and destruction. That does beg a question. Why do we resist our conscience? Why do we hide our sin? One reason is because we are proud. We're proud. We don't want to be held accountable to God. We want to be the ruler of our own life. So instead of confessing, we just hide it. But this is foolish because there's really no such thing as a secret. Someone working in the intelligence community once said, there's no such thing as secrets. It's only delayed disclosure. God always knows everything, even if you don't say anything. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. According to this verse, there is nothing safe about secret sin. God opposes the proud, but we can be thankful that he disciplines those whom he loves, and even when we're blinded by our sin, he can draw us back. Another reason we hide our sin, though, is because we are ashamed. We are embarrassed. Embarrassed by what people will think. We don't want people to know. Like Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves and hid from God, we try to hide our sin and hope that time will make people forget and that our conscience will eventually be quiet. But this is also foolish for two reasons. First, everyone knows you're a sinner. It's public knowledge. Scripture says it. We are all sinners. 
You're not fooling anybody. But you would, might say, but Tyson, you have no idea the kind of sin that I have committed. And I'd say, I know how vile your sin is. Because your sin and my sin are so vile that it took the crucifixion of our perfect Savior to save us. And there is no vile sin that God's love for you through Christ's sacrifice cannot cover. Jesus died to wash away your guilt. There is no sin that has overtaken you that is not common to man. Jesus died to take away your shame and your guilt. It says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no guilt. If you confess your sin and put your trust in Christ, then there is no more guilt. And if he does not condemn you, who else can? There might be people who will, but what does it matter if Jesus does not condemn you? Jesus died only to, not only to save you, but to clean your conscience and wash away the guilt. God's mercy is meant to draw you to confess your sins. It is what motivates us to confess. It calls you to lay down your guilt at the foot of the cross and hold it no longer. That's the negative way you can train your conscience. But the positive way to train your conscience is by obeying it, which leads to blessings. Verse 13 but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. The first way to obey your conscience, to train it positively, is by repenting of your sin. Now, repenting is much more than just confession. It's more than just feeling sad for your sin. There are lots of people in the world who will readily confess that they are sinners and even feel sad for their sin, but they don't repent. Judas Iscariot felt sad for betraying Jesus. He confessed the sin even publicly in front of people, threw the blood money back at the feet of the Pharisees, but he did not repent. He did not love the Lord Jesus. He didn't seek mercy from the Lord to make his guilty conscience go away. He sought suicide. Verse 13 says that the, the one who confesses and forsakes his sin obtains mercy. To repent means that you abandon the sin and obey God instead. So throughout the Old Testament, the word for repentance you'll often see is the word turn or return, like in Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So if someone turns away from sin but doesn't turn to God, they have not repented. Another thing to keep in mind about repentance is that it is not a one-time action, just like faith is not a one-time act, but it is a lifestyle. It means that you commit that it, what, what, and what that's, what the, <laughs> and what this means is that if you commit the same sin over and over again, which we often are prone to do, struggle over and over with a sin, it doesn't mean that you're not repenting. Now, if you look at your life and you are repenting, uh, repeating the same sin over and over again without any effort, 
without any guilt and sorrow over that, then yeah, you might need to evaluate your repentance. But true repentance is an attitude that is documented over time more and more consistently as a 180 degree turn in your lifestyle. It's not just sorrow over sin, but sorrow over sinning against God that produces change in your heart. Those of you who have been Christians for a long time will understand the correlation between your growth in holiness and your sensitivity to sin. As you grow, you, as you chop down the trees of sin in your life, you often will stand back only to see a giant forest of other sins still there. This doesn't mean you're not a believer. As a Christian grows, uh, they will sin less, but they will feel it more. Even the Apostle Paul, a mature Christian, said, I am the chief of sinners. Oh, wretched man that I am. He was very aware and sensitive of his sinfulness. This is at first very discouraging in the life of a believer. It usually causes us to doubt our salvation, start to question what it looks like to be assured of your salvation. But as your awareness and sensitivity and the awfulness of sin grows, so does your awareness of the beauty and power of the cross. Those who confess and forsake their sins obtain the mercy of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. This makes training our conscience to obey so important. And that means we need to ensure that our conscience is working precisely, properly, and is not a weak conscience. That's why the next way you train your conscience to obey is by calibrating it against sin. You know, sometimes you need to calibrate a tool before you use it in order to make sure it works properly and safely. I've recently been using a voltage testing pen in my basement while I do electrical work. And even though I know I've turned the breaker off, I still test the electrical wire to make sure I don't get zapped. But the wire I'm about to work on is not the, the wire that I test the voltage pen on. I go to a wire that I know is hot and I test it there first to make sure that voltage pen is working properly. I calibrate that pen and make sure it's not giving me any false readings. In the same way, the conscience is insufficient to be a, good, a tool used by itself. Right? The voltage testing pin is not the source of authority by itself. I need something to standardize and calibrate it to. Our conscience is an insufficient judge of good and evil by itself. It's a skylight that lets light into the soul and reveals what's there, but it's not a light bulb. It doesn't produce its own light. It needs to be calibrated in order to detect sin properly. Most people will use their own feelings as a standard. It's the whatever feels right standard. But this just leads to the justification of all sorts of terrible, evil things. Many men and women participate in abortion by desensitizing their conscience to the murderous act, by dehumanizing the baby, and justifying it as women's reproductive health care and rights. They believe that those who are pro-life are evil. Christians can easily allow their own feelings or even our traditions to become the standard of calibrating our conscience. We can form convictions over parenting, theology, or what godly behavior looks like based on the wrong source. 
All sorts of things in our, in our life can influence our conscience as well. The movies you watch, the music you listen to, the books you read, the news that you read, all that stuff can have an influence on how you think about your conscience. So what is the Christian's standard for calibrating the conscience? Proverbs 28:14 says, "Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always." This tells you that the standard is the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? To fear the Lord means you know his will and you submit to it because of who he is. It doesn't mean you're terrified of him, but that your awareness of who he is heightens your senses and causes you to act with sobriety. It's kind of like the way you handle a firearm. Even when you use all the proper safety precautions in handling a firearm, there is still a healthy sense of fear you ought to have over it because of the danger that it has and the lethality that it has. Those who know how to handle a gun aren't terrified, but they have a healthy fear of it. It's the same with those who fear the Lord, yet are safe in Christ. Those who fear him are not terrified of him because the passage says, blessed are those who fear the Lord. Another way to say that is joyful, happy are those who fear the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's another way of saying that our conscience is calibrated by knowledge of God through his word. See, your pastors are not the source of calibrating your conscience. Your parents are not the ultimate source for calibrating your conscience. Your friends are not the ultimate source. God certainly uses those people to bring his truth to bear on you, but we are not the ultimate source. Only God's word is the ultimate source. So when you're faced with a decision and you're not sure what is right or what is wrong, educate yourself with God's word. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. When it's dark and you don't know what is right, look to God's word. David says in Psalm 19 that God's word revives the soul, makes us wise, brings joy to the heart, and gives understanding. And therefore then in verses 11 through 12 he says, Moreover, by them, God's word, his laws, commands, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And then he asks rhetorically, who can discern his errors? Apart from God's word, who can know what is right and what is wrong? The answer, no one. The Holy Spirit works in tandem with God's word to help us understand what is right and what is wrong and renews our minds continually. As we educate it, though, we must be willing to submit to the Lord who reigns over our conscience. Peter is a really good example of this. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision, and God shows him a bunch of unclean animals, and he says, Peter, get up and eat. It's time to have a barbecue pulled pork sandwich, okay? And Peter says, wait a second, in the Old Testament it says these animals are unclean and I shouldn't eat them and I have never done so. So what's your game, God? What's going on here? Peter conscientiously objects to God telling him to do something. And God comes back, they do this three times. And God tells him, no, in the new covenant, these animals are not unclean anymore. 
And so Peter submits his conscience to the Lord who reigns over it. As you calibrate your conscience, you will most certainly find out that you have a weak conscience in certain areas. God is gracious to us. He teaches us slowly and he's patient with us when our conscience is weak, but we ought to strive to strengthen our conscience. A conscience can be weak because we're just simply missing something, something we didn't know God's word says. This is a particularly seen in like a brand new believer's life. They've studied God's word for the first time. They're like, I didn't know that was wrong. Oh, sexual immorality is a sin against God and others. I didn't know that. Being under the influence of anything else other than the Holy Spirit is sinful. I didn't know. Gossip and lying are a sin and so on and so on. So sometimes a weak conscience is calibrated by adding commands to it. But on the other side, a weak conscience can also be one that is oversensitive and packed with too many rules. Weak consciences tend to be legalistic or even unhealthily troubled. It can believe that it's wrong to eat meat, that it's sinful to participate in Halloween, to work on the Sabbath, or to drink alcohol or get a tattoo. The weak conscience would say something like, you're unloving if you didn't wear a mask during the COVID pandemic. But a weak conscience would also say, you're unloving if you did wear a mask during the COVID pandemic, right? Both of them can be weak. As a weak conscience is calibrated by God's word, you'll see a subtraction of rules and traditions that have wrongly been elevated to the level of a command from God. One thing is clear. No two people have the same conscience on every issue in life. So that leaves us with the question, what do you do when your biblically informed conscience comes into conflict with someone else's biblically informed conscience? Well, let me give you quickly in our remaining time seven principles from Scripture that help us navigate that inevitable situation. The first principle, always obey your conscience. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. We've already established that it's a sin to go against your conscience. We must be willing at the same time, though, to submit our conscience to the Lord who reigns over it and change when needed. But until that change occurs and you become convinced in your heart, do not sin against your conscience. Number two, never force someone else to submit to the rules of your conscience. Your conscience is given to you for you. This doesn't mean that you can't try to help someone change if you think they are stumbling in sin. We actually have a biblical responsibility to do that. Evangelism is God making an appeal through you upon somebody's conscience to change. If you are parenting your children and doing it biblically, it means not just giving punishments when they do something wrong, but shepherding their heart and bearing upon their conscience with the word of God, appealing to the conscience to turn to Jesus. If we counsel one another, we're appealing to people to change in their conscience. But changing somebody's conscience is the work of God and is not your responsibility. Third principle, never abuse your Christian liberty. Just because we have differences in our conscience doesn't mean there's not a right answer. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that he was convinced personally, but also in Jesus Christ, that eating meat was okay. 
But that didn't mean Paul went around rubbing it in the faces of people who struggled with eating meat. He did not abuse his strong conscience on the issue. All things should be done for building each other up and pursuing peace. Those who have a strong conscience ought not to be arrogant towards those who have a weak conscience. Principle number four, welcome those who disagree with you. Romans chapter 14 reminds us that God loves and welcomes us even though we do not have a perfect conscience. If God welcomes us in our weakness, we ought to be accepting and loving towards others as well. Number five, be patient with the weak. Walk in love and do not live to please yourself, but to serve and build up others just as Jesus does with us. Principle number six, entrust judgment to God. Romans 15 makes it clear that we are not to judge one another for our differences in conscience. God will judge each one and every one of us at the day when we stand at the bema seat of Christ. We build on top of the foundation of the gospel and the Lord will test the motives of our hearts to see whether it's wood, hay, and stubble or whether it is metals and precious jewels that will last. And the finally, number seven, evaluate your motives constantly. Your motives in your conscience should always be to please God, not to boost your own self-esteem and ego. We ought to live and obey our conscience to glorify God and not glorify ourselves. After all this is said and done, it's so important to remember that your conscience is a gift from God that is meant to keep you away from sin and drive you toward his mercy so that you will always obey your conscience and the Lord who rules over it. We all must continually grow in listening to, training, and obeying our conscience in order to please and glorify the Savior who purchased us with his blood. And at the end of the day, if you don't remember anything else, hold on to this. Be troubled by your sin. Find peace by trusting in Christ and resolve to please God in all things. Now, as we prepare to take communion together, Paul reminds us of the importance of the conscience in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you haven't picked up any communion elements, our ushers are going to walk down the aisle and uh, they'd be happy to give you one if you just raise your hand as they walk by. Some of you are, as the lot has been cast, will have a different type of communion cup. Some of you will have the bread on top. Some of you are going to have it on the bottom because we have a new communion we're switching to and it's much tastier. So you will be blessed this morning. You won't have to eat the styrofoam wafer anymore. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, Paul wrote, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In this passage, Paul warns us about taking communion in an unworthy manner. That just simply means taking communion 
while professing to be in the right relationship with the Lord, professing all the blessings of having fellowship with him and, and being uh, guilty, uh, uh, a guilt-free conscience, but not living like it, living hypocritically, saying one thing with your mouth, but living like the devil, having unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life. That's what he means. And if you do take communion in an unworthy manner, you are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. If you took the American flag and you threw it on the floor and stomped on it, you would be guilty of offending our country because the flag represents symbolically our country. In a similar but far more serious way, taking communion in an unworthy manner is dishonoring Jesus through the symbols which represent his sacrifice, which purchased the new covenant. Paul says that many have suffered judgment in the form of illness and even death for doing that. The Greek word for judgment there does not refer to condemnation in hell. He makes that clear at the end that says, even those who have died were disciplined so that they would not be condemned with the rest of the world. God takes communion so seriously that he will take you out of this world and into heaven rather than let you profane the name of Christ. So while communion is supposed to be a joyous celebration, and it is, it's also one that should cause us to examine our hearts and fear the Lord. So if you have unreconciled sin in your heart, I would encourage you to take a moment before you take the elements to confess that sin to the Lord. If you need to make something right with somebody, I would encourage you not to take communion until you have had adequate time to do so. But at this time, go ahead and remove the cellophane layer from the bread and take the bread out. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat together. And be carefully remove that foil. If you've got the old version of the communion, don't spill it on yourself. Paul later writes, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us drink together. Please pray with me. Lord, we are thrilled to be able to celebrate communion together because of what it represents and means. We can boldly approach your, your throne with confidence because not of anything in ourselves, but because of Christ's shed blood. He has made us righteous in your sight. He has cleansed our conscience from guilt. And so we can come to you and enjoy intimate fellowship with you and praise you for your gracious mercy that you have shown us. Lord, I pray that uh, 
this text this morning would create an awareness and a sensitivity to our con- about our conscience in each of our minds this, as we move forward here, and that we will be more sensitive to how we train our conscience, that you would help us to uh, obey our conscience always, to fear you so that we might have joy and obtain mercy every day. And Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with their conscience, who are silencing it, who are searing it, Lord, that you would uh, increase the volume on that conscience until they can bear it no more and are left with the only response of taking it to the cross so that they would be freed from the guilt and burden of their sin, Lord. And as our conscience, as we calibrate and train it, Lord, may we just continually praise you all the day, and may we grow in patience and love towards those who differ from us. We ask for your help in this way, in Jesus' name, amen.